Those who study full-time have an 80% chance of completing. But those who study part-time, however, face a 50-50% chance of actually completing. Guilty. <laughs> Welcome to the Grattan Report podcast. You're with Megan from the Grattan Institute and today we're discussing the benefits and costs of trying university. Nearly a quarter of a million students will start a bachelor degree in 2018, but at least a quarter of them will leave without getting a degree. And while dropping out is not always a bad outcome, for a significant minority, incomplete degrees leave them with debt and regret. In Australia, our higher education system lets people try out university, which for many first-year university students who are uncertain about their direction can be beneficial. Although not enrolling as well as dropping out has costs and risks that should be considered. But with some changes, Australia's higher education system could make dropping out less common and less costly. Grattan's newest report, Dropping Out, The Benefits and Costs of Trying University, takes a look at what could be improved to increase the benefits of Australia's higher education system. Joining us today to talk through those findings is higher education fellow and co-author Itama Trastadam. Welcome back to the podcast, Itama. Thanks, Megan. It's nice to be here. Now, Itama, the report looks at the process of how Australians start university and how they leave. Based on your research, were there particular patterns for how students start and end their university enrolment? Yeah, so what we found is actually quite interesting and different from our prior expectations. Mm. Um, so the, the, the conventional measure of attrition is essentially of the students who actually were there at the first census date, what proportion of them actually turn up in the second year. But what we found in the report is that a larger portion of students actually left prior to this first census date. In fact, of those who apply to university, about 33% have left already before the first census date. Wow. And then you have about 8% who would leave before the second semester census date, mm. and then another 5% who leave before the second year. Right. Wow. Okay. So that's actually, those figures are quite interesting. So using the conventional method then of measuring attrition, is there a problem with Australia's attrition rate? Well, um, the attrition rate has actually gone up um, slightly over the last few years. Mm. Um, but the level in the 2015, the 2015 level is still not that much higher than what it was in 2005. Mm. So it's a bit higher, but not something that is, you know, too problematic, I guess. Mm -hmm. So obviously then 33% dropping out prior to the census date, that seems like a bigger issue? Well, um, we don't actually think it's a, it's, it's a problem. Um, we think it is part of the what we call the mutual selection process where students and universities learn about the experience, about one another, and just trying to work out whether this is right for, for them. And, you know, students, some of, some, some of the students did not accept their offer and some also did not get an offer. So there are things that are going on between both universities and students which allow them to select themselves out mm. when they know that the experience is not for them. Now, for those who are staying after a particular census date, obviously it costs both time and money to attend university. So for someone who's, cho who's choosing not to complete a degree, is that time and money just wasted? 
Not at all. Um, we did actually did a, a, a survey um, through an online survey um, promoted on Facebook. Um, yes. And, and I, I know that this is not exactly, you know, the gold standard of, you know, doing social science survey, etc. <laughs> but we um, but we were unable to find a good survey or a good um, analysis that looks into um, the experience, like experience of those who dropped out. Mm. Um, there's one survey which is done in Europe and that was it's small sample size and it's in Europe. So it's quite a different experience. Mm. So what we want to do is to kind of understand what's going on with those who dropped out. And so we put the call out there um, at the end of last year and we got about 400 people who um, responded. Amazing. Yeah. And what we found is that most students actually had, you know, received some benefits from going to university. The most important benefit was actually the course was interesting, which is great. Yeah. Um, And... Even though some of them, well, even though they didn't get a degree, some of them actually received some employment-related benefits. Mm -hmm. So things like, you know, learning useful skills and some of them also realise their goals while they're at university Mm. as well. Having said that, though, there is still about a fifth of students who could not nominate anything positive about their experience, unfortunately. Another thing that is interesting about what we found is that um, we also asked students if they think they would be in a better position now with the degree, mm. so of those who dropped out. And the majority of people, over 60%, said yes. So they think oh. they would actually prefer to have a degree. That's not an admission to say that they would go back in time and do and put more effort and those kind of things. Mm. But certainly, um, you know, f- from their perspective, it's actually better for them to have a degree. Mm. So So there's almost, there's still this kind of general feeling in society that you'll be better off if you've got a degree basically yeah yeah and and we do we we do we, we see that in in our in our analysis as well mm. you know people who have a degree generally earn more than those who don't have a degree mm-hmm. um those who drop out still generally earn more than those who you know did not give it a try and we think there's kind of two things that are going on one which is the um students actually those students actually have a I guess, a higher cognitive ability um, because generally we know that people who apply to university have a higher ATAR. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that we saw in our survey that employment-related benefits are actually quite common among those who drop out. Mm. So they've learned something. So obviously then, by the sounds of it, there are both costs and benefits. Is there something that can be done to both reduce the costs and increase those benefits? Absolutely, Megan. Um, we actually got a really good data set from the Department of Education and Training, which is the admin data set, which means that we can track students or university students over time. And what we could do is work out the uni- what we could do is to work out their completion prospects from that information. Um, and what we found is that much of the risk um, involved in going to university could be predict it using their prior information, so prior to enrolment information. Well, that leads very nicely into my next question for you, which is, are there clear indicators on those students who are more likely not to complete a degree? And if so, what are they? Yeah, there are a few. So the first one is part-time study. Um, That is the main and the most negative factor on your completion risk. Those who study full-time have an 80% chance of completing. But those who study part-time, however, 
face a 50-50% chance of actually completing. Guilty. <laughs> and and um, it's actually even worse the fewer subjects you do. So mm. if you do four subjects, which is about half time, then it's 50-50. If you actually do you know, four subjects two a subjects, year. that's yeah. right. Mm. If you do two subjects a year, then your chance is actually really quite low. Wow. The um, another thing that is worth pointing out is about you know if you continuously study part time, your risk is even worse. So your chance, about seventy percent of students who study part time continuously, will not complete. Wow, that's a big number. Yeah. Uh, are there other study factors? Yeah. So ATAR is an interesting one, and it has been getting a lot of media coverage in the last few weeks, mm-hmm. um, understandably. Um, we think that ATAR is still an important factor for completion. The higher the ATAR, the higher the chance of completion. Mm. So if your ATAR is 90 or more, then your chance of completing is about 80%. Mm-hmm. Now, of those who have an ATAR of 60 or below, your chance of completing is about 60%, so right. quite a bit lower. Mm. One thing that we found quite interesting, though, um, is online. So mm-hmm. for most people, they think that online is probably just as bad as part-time. It turns out that online has very little impact on your completion. So if you're studying full-time online, yes. that won't impact, you know, That's your, right. So it's still, it's still yeah. a marginal negative impact. It's still mm. a marginal negative impact, but it's certainly not as, uh, not as um, bad as p- studying part-time. Mm. And are there personal characteristics or, um, you know, issues culturally perhaps that, that make an, a difference when it comes to completion? Yeah, um, we, we didn't find much of an effect from things like, you know, country where you're from mm-hmm. or language spoken at home. There mm-hmm. are some kind of small impact along the way, but it's, it's not as big as we thought. And that's, that's really interesting for us because we, because of data we have, we, we have the ability to get so many, so we have the sample size that is so big that we can track to very small groups that would otherwise not be possible to analyze in surveys. Mm. And what we found is that even with the sample size as big as what we have, which is almost 400,000 people, we couldn't find a huge, we, we, we didn't find a big um, difference between for those characteristics. Right. So obviously we have a fair bit of information that, that helps us to understand the patterns of, of dropout rates. What can we do to make sure that students are armed with this information to help them make more informed decisions about their future? Yeah, we think that um, we think that we could provide more clear and simple advice to students. Um, so at the moment the government has a website called So at the moment the government has this website called Quality Indicators for Learning and Teaching. And that website has information around student satisfaction as well as graduate graduate employment outcomes. But it doesn't have information about completion or retention or attrition for that matter. Mm. And so what we're saying is that the government should provide more information and information around completion risk for students, for prospective students thinking about different options available to them on this website. And we think that the government should also provide in a way which is more personalised. What we found in this report is that, so if you just use kind of group averages, you'll get something which is similar to the, the online issue, which is most people think that online is a real problem, but that's largely contributed 
by the fact that online students tend to study part-time and tend to be mature age. And those things are kind of negative, fact, negative um, risk factors for your completion. But once you control for those things, it's actually not, 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 a bad, um, not that bad of, an, uh, of a factor. Mm. So where do universities sit in all of this? You know, do university admissions practices have a role? Could universities be doing more to help prospective students make the right decision about starting university or not? Absolutely. So universities currently focus on things like ATAR and other academic indicators to assess students when they admit them into university. And what we're saying is that they should kind of they should broaden that understanding a little bit and to not just include ability but ability and effort. We know that, you know, to succeed at university doesn't just require you to be smart but also put in the effort that is required um, to, to learn the, the new concepts, etc. Um, at the moment, all, all courses at university would have what we call the maximum completion period, which usually is about eight years for a kind of a normal three-year degree. Um, with with eight years, you would need to pass at least three subjects per year. But there are a lot of students who, about nearly 10%, who start their university um, with fewer subjects than mm. that. And what we're saying is that universities should provide more information from the start. And instead of just um, simply talking about the flexibility of studying, also kind of recognise and tell students what they need um, to be able to succeed within you know, the, the, the required period. Mm. And also when they re-enrol students, what happened at the moment is that because of this, um, the improvement in technology, students enrol online, which is great and more flexible and convenient for students. But there are things that universities can do more to provide more guidance along the way so that students know rather than you know ending up with five years of you know study or spending time studying and then realize that you only have one or two years left but that's not enough to actually complete a degree. So the report suggests that the primary regulator of Australia's higher education system, the Tertiary Education Quality and Standards Agency or TEXA, that they could make a number of enhancements to their practices. Um, can you talk us through them? Yeah absolutely. So what we what we what we saw is that TEXA focuses on things that are kind of more traditional understanding of risk. Mm. So, you know, like ATAR, low ATAR students, students with weak academic backgrounds, for example. Mm -hmm. And what we're saying is that TEXA should expand the, the understanding or the idea of risk to include things like part-time. So what we found in the report is that part-time does not just include ability, but also includes ability plus effort. Mm. And that's important because if you don't have, if, just because you're smart, but you don't have time, you have other commitments, you work 40 hours a week, then you're probably not going to have time to actually study. Mm -hmm. And that poses a risk on whether you're going to complete or not as well. Yeah, definitely. At the moment, what TEXA does is analysing risk at the institutional level. So for most institutions, part-time is actually quite a small proportion of, their, of the share of students. And what happened is part-time is actually quite a small proportion of, um, of students at most universities. And so with that, it hides the problems or the potential problems of 
part-time students. Mm. And so what we're saying is that Texas should also focus on things like high-risk factors, including part-time. Now, Ada, but there are some practices already in place designed to help students decide early in their degree whether it's the right choice before incurring too many costs, such as, say, the census date. Are they enough? Yeah, we know that universities are doing something on this. Um, universe, most universities sent an email to students and reminding them about the census date so that, you know, if they, do, if, if they want to drop out, they can without being charged. But we still think there's a problem. So... Once again, this is a, there is a caveat to this to this um, to this result, which is it's not a gold standard um, survey, but um, <laughs> but it was it was done um, two weeks ago, which is about halfway through the semester. Mm. And we went to four different universities, four different campuses in Melbourne, and we got about two hundred students. Asked them, do you know what a census date is? And could they name what the census date is for, which is, you know, the date when you're liable for the debt or mm. have to pay for the fees? Mm. Um, it turns out that only less than 40% of students actually could name what the census date is for. Wow. And even fewer could name when when it's when when about it is oh amazing yeah so it turns out that overall less than a third actually could name what it's for and when it is Mm. so we think even though some universities are doing something sending messages text messages and those kind of thing or emailing students Mm. um, and that's good but we think that universities could do more and one interesting fact about that survey is that most students are actually not first year students in that survey. Wow. Wow. That's very interesting. <laughs> right. And we, we were quite concerned with that, with that information, given that, you know, if you've been there for at least one year, mm. you passed two census date, possibly more, but you still don't know what it is or what it's for. You couldn't name it. Mm. The funny thing is most people thought it's actually the last date um, to withdraw without fail. Mm. So... That seems like a significant number of people who either don't know what it's for or when it is. What more can universities be doing to actually give this information and, and get this information out to students? Yeah, so we, we know that some universities are using text messages and I think yeah, and, and we think that's been quite useful, especially in the health sector. You know, you're being reminded for your next week's appointment, etc. So that's been quite useful in health and we are suggesting that universities should do more of that. The problem with sending an email to students is that, you know, if you're an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, you, you don't even, you know... There's a lot of people who don't know how to lock on to the system or, you know, they're too disengaged to actually know, um, you know, to, to create a username, for example. There's a lot of things that's going on and it's being sent to an email address that most students probably don't use. Mm. So text messages we think is more appropriate, especially for younger demographics. So, mm. um, another thing that we think that university could do is to disenroll, disengage students. Um, It is really difficult to identify what proportion of students who are disengaged, but we know that a larger portion of students, about, you know, about nearly 6% of students are actually either fail all their subjects in your first semester and then leave. Mm. And then about another 2% actually fail all the subjects 
then return and then fill all the subjects again. Wow. And it turns out that that proportion has been increasing slightly over over the last few years. Mm. So university could disenroll students um, after the first semester and before the for, before the second semester census date, and that would give. Um, university enough information so that they can assess whether students actually disengage um, and also students enough time to disagree or actually complain about you know the you know the disenrollment so there, there needs to be a due process right you know you can't just ask you can't just disenroll students without giving them the opportunity to come back and say you know actually I am willing or you know I did you know mm. I, I turned up and you know please don't disenroll me essentially. Mm. Um, and it would certainly be a, a much more um, a, like a, a, a much more the student would be much more likely to notice an email that says you've been unenrolled ab- <laughs> disenrolled than a, an email that says you know you have to drop out of your subjects before blah blah date. Absolutely yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Um, and the last thing that we propose is something that's a bit more controversial. So at the moment, the census date is when you you can opt out of your study and you don't have to pay. And what we're saying is that maybe if those things that I mentioned don't work, after you try those things, maybe we could trial something called an opt-in census date. Mm. So instead of actually asking students to opt out, they could you know, ask students to opt in, essentially asking, essentially making university ask students for an approval or a um, confirmation. Confirmation, that's right. So that would, we think that would actually improve the engagement process, you know, that Mm. would actually I guess, realign incentive to make sure that universities would be more likely to engage students before the census date. Mm. Even though some universities are doing a, a relatively good job, but we also see that some universities could definitely do more. Um, so you've spoken a bit in that last answer about disengaged students and getting information to disengaged students is perhaps a little bit more different. So a lot of the stuff we've talked about today is as ways that we could improve um, or, or, you know, decrease the dropout rate. Um, in terms of disengaged students, are they going to use this information or even see it in the first place? So that's a really good question, Megan. Um, so the, the reason we propose two different sets of recommendations is because we think information will help a lot of students, mm. um, will help prospective students who understand and kind of really engage about their study. But we know that there are students who want look at these websites, who want actually, you know, go to these websites and work out their risks, their prospects, and they, they're kind of a lot of them are marking time. We, we saw that in, in a, a number of survey. And what we think we could do is, you know, for those who engage, we could provide them more information. It would not help everyone in the same as my school would not help all students, but mm. we know that there are a lot of students, a lot of parents who use that website, and same as Quilt, as we talked about before. And for those who don't use a website or don't engage enough to actually look and, and, and go and look at these websites, the government could, the government and universities could do more to try to engage these students. And what they need to also do is for those who disengage, minimise the cost of trying university. Mm. Going back to what we talked about at the start, trying university is not necessarily a bad thing. But what we want to do is improve their chance of completing. And for those who it is not 
it's not working out for them, minimise the costs involved in trying it out. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Itama. Um, I, I understand you've also done some work on um, understanding the underlying causes of attrition in a little more detail, and that's been released alongside this report. So I would look forward to having you on again soon to talk through those findings in detail as well. Wonderful. Uh, if you'd like to download a copy of the full report we've discussed today, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. As always, you can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news, reports and events by subscribing to our Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.